Holy God, uh, thank you for the gift of community. Thank you for giving us this moment, this opportunity to gather together and to be your body and to listen for your word so that we can go out into the world and become your word, blessing the world you love. Amen. What a great theme for the summer, created for community. I will come and talk about community anytime you want. And in fact, today you may find it hard to get me to shut up. Because community is just so central to how I understand it is that God loves us in Jesus Christ. It is pretty much the whole point. God has created us for community. God's created us to live in loving and just community with God and with each other. Now, I learned this from my pastor and mentor back in Birmingham, Eugenia Gamble, who had this mantra that we'd hear her say all the time. It's all about community. So if we were talking about Paul's letter to the Romans, it's all about community. If Eugenia was trying to get local officials to give money for the church's new shelter for homeless women and children, it is all about community. If we were arguing over politics or the casseroles for the Wednesday night church supper. It's all about community. And in my life, in that community, this sunk into my bones so much so that now, at home, if I start getting too excited about people gathering together and working together and protesting together, my partner Jeff has been known to say, okay, okay, I get it, Eugenia Jr., it's all about community. And then we come to this text from Ephesians with this soaring proclamation and promise of unity. You who were once far off have been brought near in Jesus Christ. And now you're one body growing together to be a dwelling place for God. This is such good stuff. So I thought I'd come today and talk about the unity in community. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about unity as we usually talk about it in the church. When it comes to unity, as we tend to talk about it in the church, I am, at best, ambivalent. You see, my experience of the word unity in the church has primarily been an experience of silencing. A silencing of my sometimes dissenting voice and of the voices of others all in the name of unity. Now, a number of years ago, I went to our denomination's general assembly. It's the biennial gathering. Uh, this one was in San Jose, and I was in seminary, serving as a seminary advisory government. Now, this is about 10 years ago, so imagine this is back in the day where there were big disputes over whether LGBTQ plus people like me could be ordained, whether we could be married. And I know that this is the church that I was ordained in, so you know that when I first started seminary, the church said that. The church said that I couldn't be ordained. So early on, I got involved with a community within the church that was advocating for full, full inclusion and for change. Well, I go to this general assembly as a theological, what is it, theological student advisory delegate, and they gather us all, all the commissioners, all the young youth, youth delegates, and they give us an orientation, and they put us around tables, round tables um, where they want us to share with our hope for the general assembly. And so I got lucky and ended up being at a table also with my friend Derek McQueen, who um, is, was a student then at Union, Union Seminary in New York City. 
And we started around the table, and about the second person was a woman who, who shared this She said, I hope that in this General Assembly, we can be all about unity. I hope we can avoid disagreement and dispute, because that's all the newspapers cover when they come together for General Assembly. They cover all of our arguments and all the protests and all the disagreements over controversial issues. I just hope this time we can all get along. That we don't have those disagreements, that we don't have those disputes about, you know, controversial issues. And that kind of set the tone as we went around the table. And I can't remember what Derek said, but when it got to me, believe it or not, I said hardly anything at all. And then when we got, got up from the table and walked away, and I turned to my friend Derek, who is now the Reverend Dr. Derek McQueen, and I said, you know, Derek, I felt really silenced at that table. It was almost like my presence is unsettling in this assembly. And Derek, who is both gay and black, turned to me and said, welcome to my world, honey, welcome to my world. <laughs> you see, too often in the church we speak of unity as agreement, as this calm and comforting sense that we all get along, that there's no real difference or dispute, no controversy, no disagreement, no protest. But that only works well if you are in the majority. Whenever there is any power imbalance, which is always, thinking about unity as agreement only works in our power, places of power and privilege, where the status quo is a comfort and a balm. When unity is agreement, it's a breach of unity to disagree or to raise controversial issues. At its mildest, unity in that sense works to silence disagreement and dissenting voices and to keep the body from addressing or even thinking about controversial issues. At its very worst, this type of unity can become even more coercive. There is only one way to think, and dissenters must be actively punished. Unity in this sense, in this extreme, becomes an instrument of oppression and the tool of despots. Think about that. Last month, I went to a very different kind of General Assembly. Now you can imagine in 10 years there's been a lot of change. The Peace USA now permits, permits the ordination of LGBTQ plus people and our weddings, our marriages. Um, but there's still a lot of work to do. So I've been involved and was involved with a community that included more like Presbyterians. I serve on the National Board of that organization, Covenant Network, and then this church is affiliated with Covenant Network, and a number of Presbyterians. And we brought three overtures, three issues to the General Assembly. The first one is uh, related to religious liberty. So you know the controversies before the Supreme Court about wedding cakes. And, and what we said in this overture was that. We, the, the, we wanted the Presbyterian Church to affirm its long-standing commitment to religious liberty and to reaffirm its long-standing commitment to non-discrimination and to say that religious liberty 
does not allow you to discriminate. It does not allow you to harm The second overture um, embraced uh, transgender people within the church and their rights, their right to live, to be, to serve, and to live free from violence. And it also had the church start a discussion about the, the beautiful and broad non-binary spectrum of gender. And then the third overture uh, related to celebrating the gifts of LGBTQ uh, folks for ministry and to lament the church's longtime exclusion of us from ministry. And you know what? All three of those passed the assembly unanimously. Not only unanimously, but they passed on the consent agenda. And what the consent agenda is, is this list where people put those issues that they don't think anybody's going to disagree about. And unbeknownst to all of us advocating, that's where they put it. And I was walking down the hall to find out that they passed the consent agenda. Nobody had removed it. It passed unanimously. It was a different kind of assembly. This assembly also um, stood up for Palestinian rights, which are human rights. This assembly started the long process to think about including Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail in our book of confessions. Simply got one issue wrong, and it's one that's very important to this church. The assembly stopped short and did not back away from, or did not divest from fossil fuel companies. And I know Dave Jones was such an important and powerful advocate on that issue. But it was a different kind of assembly. So when we got the news that these three things had passed unanimously, I said to one of my friends who'd also worked on the issue, I said, you know, this is almost a different Presbyterian church. And my friend said, well, no. Everybody who opposed us has left. That comment stood me still. Of course, it's an overstatement, but it points out another truth about unity. Unity's not about agreement, and it's also not about winning votes. There are many reasons we can celebrate what happened at this year's General Assembly. There were concrete moves toward justice and inclusion, perhaps, perhaps the reemergence of the denomination's prophetic voice, but we can't celebrate in the name of unity. We can't claim unity with authenticity when we are living in schism and when we always have. There are the current divides, and before those, the church was split north and south, old school and new school. We have Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and Assemblies of God. We have Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox. It is an inadequate and impoverished Understanding to think of unity as just agreement. There has to be more. And so we come to this passage from Ephesians that speaks into our deep divisions. So remember this. Remember this, all you who were far off, everyone has been, who has been told that you are somehow a stranger or an alien, that you have no hope, remember this. In Christ Jesus, in the flesh and blood and life of Christ, God has broken down every dividing wall. In Jesus Christ, those who were far off have been brought near. You are, we are no longer strangers or aliens, but citizens and members of the household of God. We are one body, Christ's own body, a new humanity being built together and growing together to be a dwelling place for God. 
Now, we're not quite sure who wrote Ephesians. And we're not even sure who the intended audience was for the letter. But one thing is clear. The writer of Ephesians is writing to people who have experienced division and exile. And the writer desperately, desperately wants to convey some important things about unity. First, and most importantly, our only unity is in Jesus Christ. Our unity comes from and exists in God's love for us in Jesus Christ and even more specifically in the blood and the suffering and the cross of Christ. We don't use those terms a lot in progressive Christian circles, but it's basically um, talking about Christ's humanity. Our unity comes in Christ's humanity with us and for us. God loves us so much and desires unity with us so much that God came to us in Jesus Christ and took on our humanity, fully human and fully God, and entered into the whole of life with us, even our suffering, even death. Second, in this unity we find in, this unity we find in Christ is first and foremost about breaking down every dividing wall. Now, in fact, dividing wall is a pretty weak translation of what's written in the Greek. There are actually two words there. The one translated dividing wall. And then there's another word that's even more concrete. It's, it's like the hedge fence that runs between fields. We might call it a border fence. God in Christ has broken down the dividing wall of our border fences, our hostility. And there's a whole other sermon in that. And then third, by entering into our experience, into our humanity, God in Jesus Christ has created an entirely new humanity, a humanity of community and of unity. This new humanity has structure and architecture. It is embodied, lived out. We are one body. We are being built together in Christ and we are growing together to become the very body of Christ, a dwelling place for God to bless the world God loves. In Jesus Christ, God has come to stand with us, entering into the fullness of our life and our suffering. The invitation then to us is that we come and stand with Jesus. We find our unity when we come to stand with Jesus, who has come to stand with us. Now, the Belhar Confession has an even more specific way of saying this. As you may know, the Belhar Confession, which is adopted as one of the confessions of the Presbyterian Church now, is a statement of Christian faith that emerged out of the experience of apartheid in South Africa. It represents a people of faith standing against policies of legalized, forced racial separation in the name of Jesus. And out of the experience of apartheid, Belhar emphasis, emphasizes that unity must be manifested and be active in a variety of ways. That unity must be embodied. That unity requires that we practice and pursue community. That we bear each other's burdens. That we suffer with one another for the sake of justice. That we pray together. That we together serve God in the world. Unity is so much more than agreement and a feeling of comfort. It's embodied. It's a way of living. It is standing where Jesus stands. Belhar says it plain. In a world of injustice and enmity, Jesus stands with the poor, the oppressed, and the vulnerable. 
The church must stand where Jesus stands. And so the church must stand with people in any form of suffering and need and must stand and strive for justice. Unity is not a feeling of agreement. It is a location, a specific location, and that location is Jesus Christ. We find our unity when we come to stand with Jesus who always stands with the poor, the oppressed, and the vulnerable. Something else happened at that General Assembly that had little to do with parliamentary procedure and votes. In the middle of the week, we paused all of the business, we put it on hold, and we as a gathered denomination took to the streets to protest, to protest something called cash bail. Now, I really wasn't aware of cash bail, so that's one of the reasons I thought this was so brilliant, because it educated even the people who were participating. Cash bail is a system that requires anyone arrested for even minor offenses to pay substantial cash bail or sit in jail indefinitely until they can get a trial. So someone who can't pay cash bail just sits there in jail and they lose their job and their income and it all spirals downward. Cash bail policies discriminatorily impact African Americans more than whites. They're part of this nation's racially discriminatory system of mass incarceration. So the General Assembly, putting itself under the leadership of local community organizers and with the leadership of our stated clerk, Reverend J. Herbert Nelson, took up a collection, including money that individual churches had sent. And we left the assembly hall and moved out into the streets and marched to the jail through the streets of St. Louis, and we took $40,000 in bail money to to actually bail people out of jail that day. In Luke 4, Jesus says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captive, and to let the oppressed go free. More than any vote that week, in that moment, we experienced and embodied unity. Now, I don't know about you, but since January 2016, I've taken to going to protest when I can. I know that many of you have done it. I've seen it on Facebook. And I've also realized there's no way that I or anyone else can go to them all, so we can all relax with that. But someone asked me if I really thought it made a difference. And you know, I don't believe that the president has changed his mind on anything because Scott Clark showed up at a protest. But here's what I've experienced. Something happens when we put our bodies together in one place and stand for something good. Something happens when one becomes two and that becomes three and four and then hundreds and then thousands and sometimes even millions and then those millions somehow miraculously become one. Something happens, something changes in me, in the gathered community, and hopefully connected with phone calling and volunteering and letter writing and fervent prayer and running for office, something starts to change in the world. Our unity is not found in calm agreement. It is found in a specific location when we stand together. We find our unity when we stand with Jesus, who always, always, always stands with the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable. And we know 
we know that there are plenty of people in this world who are vulnerable. The gap between the rich and poor grows every day under this administration. The streets of San Francisco are overflowing with folks who have no place to call home. The administration has rolled back Title IX protections for women and for transgender students. Our president sees white supremacists marching in the street and can only suggest that there might be some good people among them. Our government is separating families at the border and putting children in detention and so on and so on. So many who are vulnerable. So much to do together. It is all about community, and community is about all this. When people are made vulnerable by the use and abuse of power in the world, our unity is not a feeling of calm agreement. It often must be raucous and disruptive and always, always, always embodied. We find our unity when we show up in our bodies and with our whole selves and stand with Jesus who always, always stands with the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable. And I'd like for us to do that right here. Let's stand as you're able, get your bulletin out, and I want us to join in the, some of the words from the Belhar Confession, so this affirmation of faith. Let's stand together in body and in spirit and say what we believe. We believe that God, in a world of injustice and enmity, is in a special way the God of the destitute, the poor, and the wrong. We believe that God calls the church to follow, for God brings justice to the oppressed and gives bread to the hungry, that God frees the prisoner and restores sight to the blind that God supports the downtrodden, protects the stranger, helps orphans and widows, and blocks the path of the ungodly, that for God, pure and undefiled religion is to visit the orphans and widows in their suffering, that God wishes to teach the church to do what is good and to seek the right, that the church must therefore stand by people in any form of suffering and need, which implies, among other things, that the church must witness against and strive against any form of injustice, so that justice may roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And all God's people said, Amen. And now let's sing what we believe with hymn number 822, When We Are Living.